Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory, forever and ever. Amen. Father, that's our prayer. Our prayer to you as Jesus taught us. And so we reflect it now back to you from our hearts, from our lips. That you would guide and direct us now in these precious moments that we have to think about you and your word. Think about what Jesus wants to teach us today. Challenge us today. Give us wisdom and insight into our own lives to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. In the model prayer taught by Jesus, there's an introduction and six petitions. Three focused on God himself and three focused on God's help for us. Last Sunday, we looked at how this model prayer teaches us to start with worship, with adoration of the Father. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father is intimate and relational and loving and kindness and warmth. The reality, unfortunately, is that the word Father sometimes invokes all sorts of thoughts and images for people. For some, Father is associated with more memories and laughter and family trips and long conversations. For other, the word is associated with absence and rejection and hurt or pain. That's why it's so important to understand that God is not only our Father, but He's a good Father. We just sang that song, right? Good, good father. It was not written by the singer who made that song popular, but by two men. One who never knew his father. The only person he has ever called father in his life is God. And the other writer lost his father at the age of 14. These two men wanted to express to God, out of their gratitude to him, the amazing, life-changing truth that God is our Father, a good Father. God wants to remind you of that today, too, as his child, that he's your Father, that he cannot love you any more than he does right now. Beloved, our everyday relationship with our Father When it's not based upon our performance, when it's not based upon our actions, but it's based upon Christ's forgiveness. When we live in the reality of adoption into his family, everything about us turns into an act of worship and adoration and appreciation and thanksgiving and gratitude. Next was a phrase who is in heaven, and that reflects God's transcendence, the creator above all things, his supreme superiority. God is both with us, fatherly loving us, he's transcendent above time and space, filling the universe with his being above and totally unaffected by anything that he has created. He is our father, he is our God, the all-knowing, all-powerful, self-existent one. Hallowed be your name is God's holiness, 
separate, set apart, exalted above all names is God's name. Our God is holy. God's holiness makes him unique. He's unlike any other, set apart in total perfection. He's holy in his character. He's totally without flaw and without sin. Jesus is teaching in this model prayer for us to start our prayers off with worship, with adoration, recognizing who God is and his character and his attributes. The first object of our prayers is not us, but God. Not our needs, but God's character. Not focused on us, but focused on God. Rightfully adorning who God is correctly sets the tone of our hearts in prayer. Makes me think of Psalm 100, verse 4. Psalm 100, verse 4, gives us a great way to start off our prayers. To start off our prayers with a proper focus on God. Psalm 100, verse 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. I started doing that in college. From this verse, that's how I started praying in college. Almost every one of my prayers I start Entering his courts with praise and his gates with thanksgiving. Thanking God leads us to remember who he is. Thanking God leads us to bless his name. Thanking God leads us to think about his character, who he is. Jesus is teaching us to start off our prayers focused on God and who he is. A very practical way to do that is to get into the habit of starting off your prayers with thanksgiving. Thanking God. Thank Him for who He is. Thank Him for what He's done. Next we see we are to pray for the plan of the Father. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When the word king or kingdom comes to mind, what do you think of? Well, on the game show, Family Feud... Contestants are asked to guess how 100 people respond to various survey questions. On a 2012 episode, a contestant had to provide the top answers to the following survey question. When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? When someone mentions the king, to whom might he or she be referring? Top four answers on the board. Number one answer, 81 people said... Elvis Presley. Number two answer, seven people said God or Jesus. Number three, three people said Martin Luther King Jr. And two people said Burger King. We have a hard time in America understanding royalty, understanding king and kingdom. It doesn't fit with who we are. I know for me, for the most part, When the word kingdom comes up, it makes me think of knights, you know, and fair maidens and sword fights and castles. Disney's main theme park, what's it called? The Magic Kingdom. So how are we supposed to understand Jesus' teaching on the kingdom? I think theologian D.A. Carson put it well when he said, there's an already aspect of the kingdom and a not yet aspect. The kingdom has already come, but it has not yet arrived. Christ reigns today as king over a spiritual kingdom. And he will one day reign as king over a physical kingdom on the earth. 
called the millennium. Christ already reigns spiritually, but he will one day come back after the tribulation period and establish a physical kingdom. The king has come and the king is coming. The Jews of Jesus' day were so focused on the Messiah coming to reign as king to establish a physical kingdom that they misunderstand that his first coming was to establish a spiritual kingdom. Even the disciples, after Christ's resurrection, still struggled with putting the two comings of Christ together. In Acts 1.6, just moments before Christ ascends into heaven, the disciples asked them this question. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? See, they're still mainly thinking about this physical reign of the Messiah on earth. They're still anticipating the fulfillment of all these hundreds of Old Testament prophecies about the time when the Messiah would reign as king over a literal, physical kingdom. That time is coming. Jesus answered to the disciples in verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, we are already in the already aspects of Christ's reign in the spiritual kingdom. But the, the not yet aspects are still to come. The king has come and the king is coming. One commentator wrote, We have seen there is this present reality about the kingdom of God. It has come in Jesus. But there's also a sense in which it has not yet come in its full glory. And its final flowering is still awaited. We live now between the inauguration of the kingdom and the consummation of the kingdom. Another said to pray that his kingdom may come is to pray both that it may grow now as to the church's witness as people submit to Jesus. And that soon it will be consummated when Jesus returns in glory to take his power and reign. Matthew mentions three times that one of Jesus' main messages was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4.23, just right before the Sermon on the Mount, it says that Jesus went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom has been inaugurated. The only way into this kingdom is to willingly, willingly repent and by grace, through faith, accept your king, your ruler, Jesus, over your life. I have a king. You have a king. We have a king. And his name is Jesus. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6.33, after Jesus talks about the needs of this life, he commands his followers to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This priority command given by Jesus challenges us as of first importance in our lives to seek the kingdom of God, to seek to expand his kingdom reign by sharing Jesus and to seek to expand his kingdom reign in us by surrendering to Jesus. We're to live our lives demonstrably as citizens first of Christ's kingdom and to passionately call out, Maranatha, come, O Lord. 
God's reign is complete in heaven, but growing on earth and one day will come in its fullness. God's will is complete in heaven, but growing on earth and one day will come in its fullness. Verse 10 says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So two points come to mind. First, how can we grow in and encourage others to do God's will? And second, how are we to understand God's will? If it's being completely done in heaven, then how is it not being done on earth? This age-old issue of God's sovereignty and man's choice, of God's sovereignty in the presence of evil, won't be solved in this sermon. Even just this morning on CNN homepage, there was an article that said, what's missing from our evil debate? People are talking about this. It's helpful for us to talk about it and try to put some handles of God's truth on it. So let's talk for a moment about how we're to understand God's will in this verse. It's obvious that what Jesus asked us to pray, that we're to pray that God's will would be increasingly done, that his will would be accomplished in a more complete way on earth, in our lives, in our world, like it is in heaven. Verse 10, therefore, is clearly not a reference to God's ultimate sovereign will. Because God's ultimate sovereign will is always accomplished, always realized. His sovereign will can never be thwarted or hindered. It can never increase It can never be accomplished in a more complete way. Isaiah 46 says, I am God, there is no other. I am God. And there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times to things not yet come, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. So this prayer, asking For God's will to be done is clearly not talking about God's ultimate sovereign will. There's no reason to pray for God's sovereign will to be done because it can and only always be done. This prayer request is talking about God's moral will, the revealed will of God in his word to be done. Take Adam and Eve's first sin in the Bible. Did God want them to choose sin? No. He wanted them to choose obedience and trust. He wanted them to choose relationship and to choose him. Was God's will done? No. Adam and Eve did wrong. They disobeyed God. They disregarded God's love for them and instead pursued their own selfish wants. They chose their actions, and their actions brought consequences, and those consequences brought the induction of sin and death into the world. But at the same time, the truth is that God wasn't surprised. I mean, God didn't have to go to plan B. He didn't call a huddle with the Trinity and, you know, start wringing his hands and go, now what are we going to do? Adam and Eve's sin was against God's moral will and desire, but it was under God's ultimate sovereign will. There's a true reality that God always gets what he wants. But there's also a true reality that God often doesn't get what he wants. How these two truths work together is a mystery, which is an important reminder for us. Because guess who he is and guess what we're not? 
He is God. And we are not. He can do things we can't. He can think things we can't. He can see things we can't. He is God and there is none like Him. He knows all things. His power is without limit. His thoughts are above our thoughts. His vision, think about this, His vision sees all of eternity at once. He sees all of eternity at once. His sovereign will is never thwarted. But yet, yet, His moral will is often thwarted. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants all to reach repentance, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Yet as Jesus will say just later in this very sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. It says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those that find it are few. You see, both are true. Both are true. God wants everyone to know him. But because of choice, not everyone will choose him. It's important for us not to confuse God's sovereign ultimate will with his moral will with what He wants and with our choice. Sometimes we blame God for things we did by our choice. Sometimes we blame God for things that we did when we broke His moral will. Sometimes we blame God for things that Satan did. Sometimes we blame God for things that other evil, sinful people did. Sometimes we blame God for things that's just a result of living in a fallen world. Sometimes we say, God, why did you do that? And His answer is, I didn't do that. Sometimes we predict the truth of God's sovereign will and we twist it to make God responsible for our actions. For the actions of sinful man and the results of living in a sin-tainted world. You see, the truth of God's ultimate sovereignty does not mean that he's the ultimate causality of every action. The truth of God's ultimate sovereignty does not mean that he's the ultimate causality of every action. He did not want Adam and Eve to sin. He had allowed them a choice. He was not the cause of their choice. They reaped the consequences of their own choice. James 1, 13-14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. God doesn't tempt anyone to sin, nor does he want anyone to sin. Ezekiel 33.11 says, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their way and live, turn back, turn back from their evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? He does not want and he is not responsible for the evil that is perpetrated in our world. Great books, impressive theologians, have given lengthy answers. Yet without going into such detail, in this feeble, 
offering of a sermon to you. Let me just try to say this. What God allows isn't the same thing as what God willfully does. What God allows isn't the same thing as what God willfully does. What is part of God's sovereign will can also not be what he wants. What is part of God's sovereign will can also not be what he wants. We have choice and that choice carries with it the accountability and responsibility of our actions. Plus the very pervasive presence of sin itself has its effects on us and our world. And at the same time, God is the sovereign ruler over all things. Working all things out to the counsel of his ultimate will. And not the author or promoter of evil. As I said before, how these two work out is a mystery to us because he is God and we are not. Yet as followers of God, we cherish these words of Jesus from John 16, 33. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart. Because I have overcome the world. See, the Lord says to us in Psalm 34, 18, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Although we can't solve the mystery, we can know this without a shadow of a doubt. God loves us. God is trustworthy. His word is true. He is our Father and we are His children. God in his sovereign will has allowed choice which introduced sin and all of its consequences in our world. If God in his power dealt immediately with, in full justice on sin, he would have to eradicate all sin, which means he'd have to wipe out everyone. You and me, everyone. One wrote, God is not the author of evil, neither is he incapable of responding nor unwilling to act. His remedy for evil is not capricious. He doesn't obliterate us, the offenders, with one angry blow. Instead, I say, as God's plan, as, as he responded as to Adam and Eve's sin, as was his plan, he responded with grace, forgiveness, with hope, with love. God took Their choice of sin. God takes our choice of sin and he does the most amazing thing. What does he do with it? He says, I'll take the penalty for that sin. He sent his son as the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation, to be our sin bearer, to to take God's wrath. God in his justice and his holiness, God in his love and his grace, before the very foundations of the world, took proactive action to deal with the ravages of sin. His name is Jesus. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Isaiah 53 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's eternal plan in response to sin was to do something about it himself. To provide the only way of hope and salvation. So gracious and so kind. So patient and so loving. If you've never come face to face, to face with the truth of your sin and its eternal consequences, then today... Look at the reality of your sin and look at the reality of the gracious, loving offer of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We remember that this petition of prayer and the model prayer remind us that one day his kingdom will come. One day at the consummation of the kingdom of God on earth, when his kingdom actually comes, his complete will and all of its fullness will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means that sin will be judged and eradicated. There will never be a sin. There will never be one single sin that doesn't get just punishment. Either it's going to be dealt with in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when Jesus took God's just judgment for our sin, or it's going to be dealt with with God's great future just judgments of sin described for us in the book of Revelation. You see, when tragedy and, and loss in our lives, when difficulty and heartache comes, it reminds us, reminds us of Jesus. It reminds us of of his love for us, that he would come and take our just punishment for our sins. It reminds us of the truth that one day God's going to take care of all this questions. He'll wipe away every tear. He is God and there is no other. He is God. There is none like him. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, what's the practical application of this verse? Jesus is challenging us to pray for God's plan for his moral will to be accomplished in our lives. When we pray your will be done, we're committing to two things. We're committing ourselves to learning all that we can about his will. Which means we're committing ourselves to the sustained and humble study of the scriptures, the revealed will of God. We can know with certainty what God wants in our lives. We can know without a doubt how God wants us to live. Not because any preacher tells you. Not because you read it in some random book. We can know with certainty how God wants us to live because he told us in his word. How does God want you to respond to your spouse? The answer is in God's word. 
How does God want you to deal with temptation or with fear or with worry or with anger? The answer is in the Bible. What does God want from you in your work ethic, on your job? The answer is in God's book. We could go on and on and on listing specific questions and getting specific answers from the scriptures. See, when you pray your will be done, we are praying that a commitment to finding out God's revealed will in his word. And of course, the natural follow up to that is when we pray your will be done, we're committing ourselves to actually doing the will of God. When we pray your will be done, we're submitting ourselves to his will. We're surrendering our will to his. We're denying ourselves and agreeing with God. We both must know his will, his revealed will through his word, and then we must do it. Listen to these words from Jesus. These are Jesus' words about how he followed his father's will from the Gospel of John. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his father doing. For what the father does, that the son does likewise. I can do nothing on my own, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. It was the joy and the passion of Jesus to do the Father's will. It wasn't always easy. Lest we forget Gethsemane, right? Lest we forget where Jesus prayed multiple times, sweating blood, crying out from his heart, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Knowing full well what lie ahead, the betrayal, the suffering, the cross, death, he submitted to the Father's will. When you pray, your will be done, we are praying Like Jesus prayed. When you pray your will be done, we are praying not to do our own will, but the will of the one who died for us. When we pray your will be done, we're saying that the greatest purpose and the greatest fulfillment of our lives comes when we do his will. When we pray your will be done, we're submitting ourselves, our plans, our future, our agenda, our hopes, our actions, our thoughts, our commitments, our finances, our relationship, our everything submitted to him. Because he's our king. He's our ruler. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Another way to say that is if we love him, we will do his will. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in my life, in your life, as it is in heaven. Jesus taught in the model prayer to start with worship and adoration and thanksgiving. A focus on who God is and what he has done. Then we're to focus on God's plan being accomplished in our life. God's will being done. God's kingdom first. God's agenda first. God's commands. God's word. God's purpose first. First, 
or to submit all who we are to God, but to deny ourselves and agree with God. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter and I am the clay. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Let's pray. Father, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, in my life, in our lives, in our church, in our family. As it is in heaven, so completely. Lord, we thank you. Jesus Christ. Just the mention of his names can, can bring tear to our eye. We think about all that he has done for us. We thank you for your son and our savior. And we pray that it would be the great privilege of our lives, the great purpose and hope of our lives as we love him to do his commands, as we love him to do his will. In Jesus' name, amen.